Behind Every Farm, Winemaker, Bottle, and Grape Lies an Untold Story. This is Behind the Bottle, a podcast by Cape Classics, a South African and French wine importer founded in 1992. We are committed to discovering and sharing these tales. I am Mary Ellen Phillips, and in today's episode, we sat with Peter DeVette of Excelsior at his home in Robertson, South Africa. Peter is the fifth generation of his family to oversee Excelsior, which crafts the biggest selling South African Cabernet in the U.S. We're recording from Excelsior in Robertson, South Africa this morning, and I'm super excited to be here. Thanks for getting up early to chat with me today, Peter. It's a pleasure being here. Thanks, Mary Ellen. I'm looking forward to the chat. You are the fifth generation to oversee Excelsior. Can you tell us about your family's history? My father and I still farm together, so he's the fourth generation, I'm the fifth generation. But this farm was started in 1859. Robertson uh, is a very dry region, so um, everything that you do, you have to build water infrastructure, etc. But we are blessed with uh, a wonderful climate for growing wine grapes. So my great-great-grandfather ran away with his brother's fiancé from the Worcester district, just north of us. And um, he decided to go farming. Fortunately, he had an uncle in the um, just outside Robertson on the farm called Clip Trip, which is now um, called Springfield. And he borrowed money from uh, his uncle and bought this entire farm. It was far bigger in those days, so it's been split into four farms over time, of which we have the largest portion. And uh, what was quite interesting in those days, there's a lot of there's a river that flows through, and it was all covered in mimosa thorn trees. So he got uh, some local farm farmers to. Um, remove the trees. These farmers used to make a lot of uh, what we call vitblitz, or in America it's known as moonshine, and they needed uh, the wood for, to, to fire up their stills. Their sources of wood had been eliminated, so he realized that if he can get them to remove all the trees, roots and all, he'd be able to plant. So he got his land cleared for free, and in year one he planted wheat, and because the soil was so fertile from years of these thorn trees, thorn trees add nitrogen to the soil. Um, he managed to pay off his uncle with a bumper harvest in one year. So here he was, young man, debt-free, big farm, and newly married. And that's where the business started. He farmed for quite a long time, and it was dry. He was mainly in stock farming. They, the farmers around here realized that they needed a secure water supply to expand their businesses. And whilst uh, surveying the Bread River, which is our local river where we get water from, for possible sites for um, uh, weirs and canals, he had a heart attack and, and died. His son took over, uh, Kurvi. Now, Kurvi was a, Kurvi David was a real entrepreneur. He had an amazing ability to make money and lose money and then make money again. So um, once he had water, and at that stage, late 1880s, South Africa was starting to become fairly industrialized because they had discovered diamonds in about 1818, the town called Kimberley, uh, north east of us which became the richest diamond mine in the world at that stage, producing about 80% of the total world diamond supply. And about 10 years later, gold was discovered in Johannesburg, which was then known as the Witwatersrand. So South Africa, from being an agricultural backwater at the tip of Africa, suddenly became a fairly important player in the world industry. They needed rapid industrialization, so a rail infrastructure was built and the ports were enlarged. So we could see there was an opportunity to expand business. So the first big break that um, Quirby, my great-grandfather, got was um, during, in ostriches. Ostriches were farmed for fashion, for their feathers, mainly for hats, not like bows today. And um, there's a town called Oetsruin, about 200 kilometers east of us, which was the real hub of the industry. 
Land prices rose dramatically in Otsuran, so they looked at new areas to develop, and Robertson being one of them. So Krupi got involved in ostriches, and he made a lot of money. To give you an idea how much money was involved, at the height of the market in about 1900, one feather fetched six pounds on the market. And for six pounds, you could actually get a ticket on a cruise liner from Cape Town Harbour to Southampton, UK. So equivalent wow. to a one-way aeroplane ticket today. Each bird had two feathers, which clipped it and grew back the, by the next year. It was an artificial market. People were speculating, not unlike the sort of tulip bulb uh, bubble in the Netherlands, and probably a little bit like Bitcoin a few years ago. <laughs> so the industry collapsed 1914. Um, which is the year we started building the big manor house. And it collapsed for two reasons. The Great War, First World War I, had started, so obviously priorities had shifted. But also by that stage, the industry was wobbly due to um, the Model T Ford being so popular. Women needed street, more streamlined hats. So taste shifted and um, the industry completely collapsed. So whilst building the house, he started running out of money. He fortunately managed to, to finish off the house, but... He almost bankrupted himself with the building of the house. So it was always a millstone around his neck. Post-World War I, he got involved in um, horses. First, he was breeding horses and boarding for outside people. And later, he actually started owning his own race horses. And that got him back on his feet. Uh, then the Great Depression came along, um, which affected the entire globe. Because our region had always been very export-orientated. Everything we did, wine, fruit, and those kind of things. Um, and then post-World War II... Um, after Europe got devastated, orchards and vineyards were out of production and they also didn't have labor. And South Africa, uh, the Western Cap part of South Africa did very well again because, you know, there was a huge demand for what we could supply. So um, basically he went from ostrich boom to a slump during the war years to post-war doing exceptionally well, Great Depression slump and then post-World War II boom in the business. Um, throughout the time, we made wine, um, mainly fortified wines, because unlike today, people drank more fortified sweet wines. Um, dry wines were not that popular. I mean, and that was generally across the globe. Um, and we expand, we exported quite a bit even in those days to places like Canada and, um, and Scandinavia. So um, my, when my grandfather took over, he exported, but he was unlucky in that he from about the 1960, early 1960s, sanctions in South Africa started. You know, unlike fruit, which is a lot of fruit was still exported from South Africa throughout the sanction period, um, because fruit doesn't always carry, in those days, didn't carry a country of origin. Wine has always carried a country of origin. So even before there were official sanctions, uh, people preferred not to buy wines from South Africa as a political stance. So it really curtailed our, our business. Um, my grandfather unfortunately died fairly young of a heart attack and his wife took over and she was a massively successful farmer. Um, she's a very competent woman. She farmed on her own for about 10 years um, until her sons took over. And she, she got really into horses. She expanded our cellar. And um, uh, in fact, I came across an article recently in what we call Farmer's Weekly magazine of a, a, a flashback where it sort of profiles her, her farming days. And it's oh, quite, cool it was very cool to read. And then my, um, my father and his brother took over in the early uh, late 1960s. They were pioneers. Uh, they were the first um, wine grape producer in South Africa to use um, drip irrigation, which we still use today. 
Um, they built a modern winery in 1981. Once with cold fermentation, all the sort of things that we take for granted today were, you know, they were quite revolutionary back in the 1980s. Um, and they were also fortunate. By the late 1980s, they realized that sanctions in South Africa would come to an end, but that there were sort of changes in the politics. And they started looking around what what had changed in the world of wine since they could last export it. People were no longer drinking sweet wines, they were drinking dry wines. Mm-hmm. And more importantly, they were also drinking uh, red wines. So we 1988, we planted our first Cabernet Sauvignon Vineyard. And in 1992, they found their first export markets. Netherlands were the first, and I think it was about 1994. Um, they linked up with the um, current owner of Cape Classics, Andre Shearer, and his brother, who's, who's in business with him. And they started um, exporting first under the Indaba label and then later under the um, Excelsior label to the US. So it's grown from there. We've we still got a lot of um, Cabernet, still our mainstay of our production. It's about half our plantings. And the US is our number one market. So that's a brief overview. I started farming in 2002. And um, in that time, we renovated the old manor house into a guest house, added a restaurant, expanded the vineyard area. And um, yeah. That's beautiful. Loving it. Staying over there now so I can vouch. <laughs> and the, the racehorse is definitely a source of significance as it's on your labels. What prompted your great-grandfather to start breeding racehorses? Something about the area or of significance? Yeah, that's a good question and it relates quite nicely uh, into sort of the wine side of the business. So when you raid, raise horses on limestone rich soils which we are blessed with in in our region um the grass has a higher protein level but also has calcium uh, has calcium in it so you get a stronger horse with a strong bone structure from the calcium so um, a lot of good stock areas right across the world in, in limestone rich areas so that's why they identified the region back in the um, early 1900s as a good horse breeding area but also it relates to wine because Many wine regions in the world have limestone-rich soils. If you think Burgundy, you think the Loire, what lime gives to a soil is good drainage, a higher pH, and wine is generally a lime-loving plant. And that produces wines of elegance, um, controversial term, minerality, (laughs) um, and structure. Um, Also, what calcium in the soil does is it allows um, better drainage, Calcium drains well, but also retains some moisture. So the plant has a more favorable root environment. And what would you say is unique about Robertson as a whole? And also you touched already, but in regard to Tawar. Okay. So um, as I mentioned, the, the limestone is very important. Uh, it's the only region in South Africa with limestone rich, a wine growing region with limestone rich soils. But I mentioned earlier, we're a, we're a very dry area. It's a semi-desert. Uh, we only get about 275 millimeters rain a year, roughly 11 inches. And so we, we have to irrigate, um, but that enables us to manipulate how much water the plant needs. It's not dissimilar to some parts of um, where they grow grapes in Washington State, um, where they have to irrigate, but you can aim for small berries, good concentration of flavors. But being a dry area, we don't get much rain, so we don't have to spray much. We're not organic, but in most years, we actually follow an organic spray practice. So that's really beneficial. It enables us to get nice consistency of, um, of vintages. We don't have huge vintage variations, which is uh, nice to have. 
In previous episodes, we've spoken about South Africa's efforts in regards to sustainability. And I I just think that's such an important topic as I think few people really realize that South Africa is arguably the greenest wine region on earth. So could you expand a little bit on the sustainable practices that you employ? Okay, so South Africa, probably from about 2005, we identified that sustainability is very important. So many farms have always been sustainable, but it's never really been communicated. Um, So the IPW system uh, came into place, which means integrated production wine. So it measures all your sort of inputs and and outputs at a winery level from vineyard through to the cellar. Um, So it regulates what kind of chemicals you can use, um, how much of that, what you do with your waste in the cellar, etc., etc. So to get a sustainable approach um it's not organic um but organics isn't always the answer to everything um some practices in organics like quench and spraying a lot of copper it's it's regarded as organic but it's not necessarily good for the environment um so what we do at excelsior um i mentioned we our spray program is generally um with organic products as far as possible and we use energy very wisely. We, for instance, irrigate outside of peak times. Um, so in the middle of the night when South Africa has an oversupply of electricity, although even at load shedding right now, <laughs> what Americans call rolling blackouts. Load shedding is the deliberate shutdown of electric power in a part or parts of a power distribution system, generally to prevent the failure of the entire system when the demand strains the capacity of the system. South Africa has been amidst an energy crisis and consequently was experiencing daily shutdowns in different regions at the time of my visit. We don't really have an extra, extra <laughs> supply of electricity. And, um, and obviously we irrigate as, with as little water as possible. So generally we use about half the water that a lot of my neighboring farms would use per hectare. Yeah, and, and I mean, we could take it further. All, all the lighting on the farm is LED lighting as opposed to the traditional bulbs. So we can get by with a lot less energy. I believe in this, the idea that I have to leave the land in a better shape than I received it. So there are no quick fixes, um, but we have a program where we try and encourage as much, um, get as much organic material back into the soil. So about 10 years ago, we did soil analysis where we, our top soil was sitting at sort of 0.5% carbon. Most of our soils these days are above 1%. I've got some vineyards that are above 5%, which is phenomenal. And that you do through encouraging cover crops, manipulating weeds that you get the good weeds as opposed to the bad ones that add a lot more carbon to your top soil. It helps with water retention, soil health, all those kind of things. So I think it's very important. Definitely. What varietals do you focus on? Yeah, so I mentioned earlier Cabernet Sauvignon is our main variety. And then we've also got Syrah. Um, we're a smaller variety on the farm. It does very well. We, um, we get a lovely like red fruit, peppery elegance to it, more like a Rhone wine as opposed to the Australian style. And then uh, Chardonnay is very important to us. Um, it grows well on these limestone soils. We get that sort of bright citrusy freshness, um, minerality in the wine, um, great elegance. And then we grow a bit of Sauvignon as well. It's a warmer region, so Sauvignon is, is a little bit more of a challenge, but with good viticultural practices and, and um, looking at your picking dates, you can produce consistent Sauvignon in our, in our region. Yeah, Sauvignon has been beautiful the past couple of vintages. Yeah, we've had a good, good run of uh, vintages um, since 2017. 
we've had very good quality vintages and um, it's nice to see. Um, unfortunately, as I know um, these things, somewhere along the line we're going to get a bit of a dud vintage. It happens in, in, in <laughs> agriculture. Inevitable. It's playing roulette with God, right? <laughs> you guys do a lot for the community. It's something that really caught my attention on my first visit as I hadn't witnessed that in other wine regions I visited in different countries throughout the world. It's always something that isn't often talked about. Would you mind sharing some of the development and support programs you have for your workers? So I believe a, a business isn't just an island. A farm is an island. So what you do affects everything else around you. And, you know, we can't control everything, but at least do something that you can control. South Africa obviously has a bad history with uh, apartheid and, and human rights and um the, the legacy of that is all too apparent in our everyday lives. So we take an approach of, well, let's try and fix what we can. Unlike most producers around the world, South Africa is very different in that most producers provide housing for people. Um, so I've got 65 staff housing units on the farm. So I've got about 275 people living on the farm. So it's almost like an entire town. Yeah. We look to provide employment right through the year. So what we did in the late 80s, we actually started planting citrus um, as well because that dovetails nicely with the wine industry. With wine grapes, there's not work in the vineyards all, the, all through the year, as well as other fruits. So with having a combination of a bit of citrus and, and wine grapes, we are able to employ people on a permanent basis as opposed to seasonal. Now, South Africa is a country with about 40% unemployment. And also you've got, of those employed, a lot of people are seasonally employed in agriculture. And, um, you know, people work for four or five months of the year and then sit at home. And it's very difficult to make ends meet. Uh, we take the approach, well, I'd rather employ people right through the year. We hand harvest everything for a winery outside, which is very unusual. Um, a lot of wineries in, in South Africa of our size actually use machine harvesting, so you, you don't use labor. So I think that's, that's important. In our small way, we are, we're reducing unemployment in our community. But then also there's softer side. So I've mentioned we've got a lot of people living, a lot of people on the farm, families, etc. So about 15 years ago, we started um, sponsoring a, a, an extra teacher in the locals, uh, local school um, to try and get um, the real stars up to a higher level. Um, we introduced a supervised aftercare. So after the school, the kids come home. There are teachers there which help them with their homework run programs. We also started a creche facility on the farm about 10 years ago. It's, um, we've got 20 kids enrolled at the moment, so that's preschool. Um, and it's up to standard of any creche that I send my kids to. And, you know, it's proper programs. It's, it's a nice, safe, clean environment for the kids to kids to hopefully get a, a better start in life. I mean, we do know early childhood education is probably the most important part of your education. And um, unfortunately, in South Africa, there are not that many facilities. So we, we started that, and um, the kids are getting a far better grounding than what they previously had. We also started, uh, three years ago, a citrus project. So um, in South Africa, we, we call them empowerment projects, um, basically um, to get non-white stakeholders in the economy so that's the ultimate aim um, it's on 21 hectares of land that was never been planted i went into a joint venture with my own employees um, where we set up a company the owners of this company i lent lent this company money to start farming so 21 hectares of citrus 
and um, we've got lemons and mandarins as well as uh, grapefruit planted. So the first crop will be in 2021 and it's it's been a quite a fun exercise. And what made you choose citrus? Excelsior started planting citrus in the late 80s. Our region from a climatic perspective is fantastic for mandarin varieties because um, we get cool nights. We're at the cooler end of the spectrum when it comes to growing citrus but with cool nights the fruit um, gets high sugars whilst retaining good acidity and with the cool nights we get in in autumn the citrus gets fantastic color so as an opposite if you grow citrus in the tropics anybody who's ever been to the tropics and bought citrus in local markets like oranges you'll notice that they aren't orange they're actually green on the outside you need colder weather to be able to get the color in the fruit so uh, we started planting in the late 80s it, it does exceptionally well in our area we get good pricing fantastic quality it hasn't always like a lot of fruit crops you go through years where you do well but you also go through years where you, you do not do well at all in the 90s it was a very lucrative industry and then right through the 2000s we made i don't think one year we actually turned a profit we kept on justifying having citrus but that provided uh, our labor with work in the early part of winter um, <laughs> It was quite funny, about 2009, I was having a conversation with my father and I'd done the sums and I said, well, isn't it cheaper to um, just give people a, a six-week paid holiday than farming citrus? And <laughs> fortunately, in the, the market turned again and we've had 10 good years again. But um, if you look at the numbers, we've probably in for 10 bad years again. <laughs> so we'll sit it out and keep trying to justify it. <laughs> You can purchase any of the wines discussed today online at wine.com. For 10% off of your order, enter Cape Classics at checkout. For more information on Cape Classics wines, please visit capeclassics.com and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Cape Classics Wines. Thank you for listening and please tune in next time. Until then, cheers!